Good morning. I'll just make a quick comment here about uh, James's analogy that he gave there at the end. Um, he gave this picture of a courtroom scene, and he asked, if "Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian?" Is that right? From I'm gonna. I thought about that from a different angle. That was thinking about it. There's always two lawyers in a courtroom. That's thinking about it from the angle of the prosecutor. What if somebody was assigned to defend you? And they had to make a case, this person's not a Christian, so you don't, you don't kill them or imprison them or whatever. I sort of had to think about, you know, what sort of evidence would he try to put forward for my life? So, sort of from a little different angle there. Um, but yeah, similar meaning. So, why don't we, uh, before we get started, why don't we all stand and have a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, before your mercy seat, and God, I I thank you for being here amongst us this morning. God, I pray that you continue to work here and help us to enjoy fellowship with one another as we look into your word and uh, gain and are edified. God, I pray that this can be a time that uh, people can prosper and uh, profit, and God, I pray that you continue to work amongst us and guide my words, let them be profitable. And God, I pray again that you just bless our time here, and we thank you for the freedom that we are allowed to gather together in this land of peace that you've provided for us. We thank you for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so for our message today, I am, uh, I'm actually going to be approaching this a little bit less like a sermon and a little bit more like a, uh, a, little bit more like a classroom lecture. We're going to be going over the history of the Bible, and I'm going to hit a number of different topics, and I am, I'm not going to go very deep on many of them, but uh, I'm going to try to give us a survey of, uh, of the Bible, and I actually have, just to make sure it feels like a classroom setting, I brought notes along for you all to fill out. Um, let's see, Micah and Ethan, could you guys come hand these out for me? And just split it and take a stack. And it just doesn't have to be the adults. Anybody that can uh, take notes, they're allowed to take one. Um, here's some pens. If uh, anybody needs a pen, just put your hand up. They have pens. So how these notes are going to work here, if you, uh, you uh, pay attention to my message, the, uh, the notes there have a blank in a statement or a sentence, and you just fill that in as we go along. So I'll just wait here a second, make sure everyone gets, uh, gets a copy. So some of the areas we're going to be looking at this morning is we're going to be looking at, uh, again, mainly the history of the Bible and some of the things that relate to that. We're going to be looking at inerrancy of the scriptures, what we believe the Bible is, the literary structure, authorship, the preservation of the scriptures, the canon, translations, 
and a little bit on apologetics. So I think almost everybody has their notes and pens. Okay, so let's hit the ground running. I'm going to talk about inerrancy. Who here believes in the inerrancy of the Bible? Can you just raise your hand up? And when you raise your hand, raise it above your shoulder so I can actually see it. Okay. Now, who here believes in the infallibility of the Bible? I, I didn't see any hands go up there. Okay, they, they are two different concepts, infallibility and inerrancy. One of them, uh, inerrancy says the, the Bible is without error. Infallibility says the Bible cannot have error. Um, I'm not going to go too far in depth on uh, the difference between the two. Um, for our purposes today, that'll feel a little bit like splitting hairs. So what, what does that mean, the Bible is inerrant? Does it mean that every single copy of the Bible is free from grammatical errors? That it has all the names and dates right from thousands of years ago? Does it mean that our modern translations are without error? Or does it mean that the original text, the documents that the apostles and prophets wrote down, were written down without error? Or does it just mean the general concept, the, the big picture items are still there, the plan of salvation is still preserved? The inerrancy of the scriptures means different things to different people. If it didn't, different church groups wouldn't have to come up with all sorts of different denominational statements on what they think the inerrancy of the scripture means. Just to give us a little bit of a picture here, I, I picked out a couple of denominations and I uh, looked up their their statement of inerrancy, and I'm going to read through them here. first one here is the Southern Baptist statement. They say, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end and truth, without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. The Catholics say, the books of the scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. The Episcopal Church, which does not believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, say, The Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. Mennonite Church USA says, We accept the scriptures as the word of God and as the fully reliable and trustworthy standard for Christian life and faith. We seek to understand and interpret scriptures in harmony with Jesus Christ as we are led by the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, the little uh, little statement of faith, the little uh, book that uh, our group came up with back when uh, we were still joined with Harmony, uh, says, the Bible is written without error. That's the only thing I could find in there about that. We didn't have a very... That seemed to not be a battleground issue for us, so we didn't need a very lengthy statement. So to answer the question here, what does inerrancy mean? The dictionary definition means without error. When the liberal talks about inerrancy, they're talking about various degrees of the main truth being in our Bibles without error. That the important stuff, meaning the stuff they care about, is accurate. But when a fundamentalist talks about the inerrancy, they're not only saying the original text was written with dates, numbers, and names, all without error, but they are also implying that copies of the Bible we have today were preserved and are without error as well. 
Basically, how you define inerrancy says how trustworthy you think the Bible is. Let's uh, move on and look at some structural characteristics of the Bible. Most of you should know the Bible is comprised of 66 different books and letters, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The books of the Bible were not written with chapter and verses, although admittedly they were written with some evident breaks. They were meant to be taken as a whole. Although there may be some evidence that chapter divisions were an earlier idea, it is often a man named Stephen Langton, a then professor at the University of Paris in the early 12th century, that standardized the chapter divisions in the Bible. The chapter divisions he came up with are in everyone's Bible today. As far as the verse divisions, there was a Jewish rabbi named Nathan who came up with the Old Testament verses in the mid-14th century. And a Frenchman named Robert Stephanus came up with the New Testament verses in the middle of the 15th century, just in time for the Reformation. Now, the chapter and verse divisions were added to make referencing and quoting the Bible much easier, but it also made taking the Bible out of context much easier. We need to remember the authors of the Bible did not intend to have those breaks in there. The chapter and verse divisions are not divinely inspired. We must try to ignore them when interpreting the Bible and consider all the passages surrounding the ones we are looking at. Now, this is not to say that a verse in the Bible can't stand on its own as a quote. Many can. Many are complete thoughts that can stand on their own. But when we quote a verse by itself, we need to make sure it means the same thing in context as it does by itself. For an example here, let's... uh, Look at a verse here that uh, somebody found on one of those uh, verse-a-day calendars, like you, you pull the, the day off each day and there's another verse there. It had Luke 4-7 on it, which read, If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. On the surface, that sounds good, but that's the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So we shouldn't put any stock in the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible. The authors did not put them there. Also, the order of the books of the Bible should not be taken as God-given. At a glance, you might think they they loosely follow a chronological order. But they are not in strictly chronological order, nor are they from oldest to newest. Over the history of the Bible, there have been several different ways to group the books in the Bible, more so with the Old Testament than the New. For instance, the Old Testament order of books that we use today is basically a copy of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a 2nd or 3rd century B.C., uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. It arranged the books topically. But if you would go and look at a traditional Jewish copy of the Old Testament, you will find the order of the books based on importance. They have a, the Jews have a different concept of revelation. They say that uh, Moses was the most important prophet, so his writings you know, supersede and trump everything else. So the, they have a different order there. It's also interesting to note that in a traditional Jewish copy of the Old Testament, you'll find 24 books, not 39 like we have. The reason for that is not that there's books missing, but because they they lump things together. They lump a lot of the prophets together um, and the wisdom books together, so they have less books. Now, as far as I'm aware, the New Testament order simply comes from church tradition. Um, 
I, I couldn't find anywhere where it said, you know, so-and-so, you know, order them in this way. Let's talk about the types of the books in the Bible. You can categorize the genres of the books in the Bible many different ways. Some people have long lists and some people have short lists. Just to name a few of the genres in the Bible, there's history, poetry, prophecy, law, wisdom, epistles, gospel, narrative, and even romance. Having an, an idea of what genre you're reading is necessary to apply a proper hermeneutic or a, a method of interpreting the Bible. Just for instance, uh, Proverbs. Proverbs is considered wisdom literature. It is uh, general truth. It is not promises. It is not absolute truth. Just looking at one verse here, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that is generally true. But that's not to say that every single wayward child is the fault of their parents. Eventually, a child gets to a point where they have to choose for themselves, and sometimes they choose poorly. Perhaps we could think about prophecy. Now, prophecy is a tricky subject. Almost every prophecy that has ever been fulfilled was misunderstood by most people. Prophecy, in relative terms, talk about heavenly things, but it uses a human language. That is one reason why I get very suspicious when people are extremely confident when they have uh, all their details and ducks in a row about end times theology, about what nations do what and uh, all the things like that. Although there are different writing styles, we need to keep in mind all the authors of the Bible received their inspiration from the same source. So let's turn our attention to what that inspiration was and who the men were that God chose to write the Bible. We believe the Bible is authoritative because it is inspired by God. That is why it's set apart from all other books. We believe God desired to reveal his will to all mankind and did so through the written word. When we talk about the men who wrote the Bible, we're not talking about men that were dictated to. God did not tell them word for word what to write down. Nor did he inspire them as we would talk about an artist being inspired to paint a picture. The concept of divine inspiration is God working through the author's while allowing them their personality, but delivering the word of God through them, at times giving them visions or ancient knowledge or prophecy, or even just having them record real interactions he had with them. Now, the Bible is not special because of the men who wrote it, but because God worked through them. One of the the best examples I've heard explaining this would be as if we went to go write a letter. If we went to go write a letter and we picked up a pen and wrote our letter out with a pen, that letter is going to look different and be different as if we went and got a pencil or a marker. The, the qualities of our instrument come out in our letter. And that's what happens in the, uh, the books in the Bible. The, the qualities of the author come out. One of the most foundational verses about the inspiration of the Bible that's usually referenced is 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'll just read that here. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Other translations translated as all scripture is God-breathed. Another verse on this subject would be 2 Peter 1.21. And it reads, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, 
But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So who were these men that God chose to write the Bible? The fact is, we don't know who wrote some of, some of the books in the Bible. But that doesn't change the validity or authority of those books. If God had wanted us to know, he would have told us. He would have recorded it. For the sake of time, in the, on the back of the notes there, I have a, a list of uh, the authors and the books. And there's also some dates on there. Um, some of those authors, if they have a question mark next to it, that means it's sort of a contested thing, um, sort of assumed. And those dates are when uh, the books were written down. It's assumed when those dates were when uh, those books were written down, not when the events happened. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or the Pentateuch or the Law. If I if I asked us all here who wrote the uh, the first five books of the Bible, most of us would say uh, Moses wrote it. So what do we do about uh, Deuteronomy 34 when Moses died? Do we think Moses wrote about his own death? It's unlikely he wrote about his own deaths or events after his own death. Most, uh, most scholars speculate that Joshua would have finished up the tail end of Deuteronomy. While the book of Joshua has a similar problem, it is believed Joshua wrote it, but it records his death as well. So someone else had to finish that up. With the exception of Ruth, Esther, and Job, most of the books in the Bible are named after the person who wrote them. Jonah wrote Jonah, Isaiah wrote Isaiah, and Mark wrote Mark. The only book in the New Testament that has its authorship challenge would be Hebrews. And church tradition would, uh, would say Paul wrote it, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm content to leave it at that. In the Old Testament, again, there's a lot more variety of questions. We have books that have multiple authors. We have books without authors, only assumptions to go on. And some books that uh, people debate if it was one author or another who wrote it. And again, who wrote the Bible is not the important part. The important part is whether or not God inspired it. Now, the oldest book of the Bible, scholars claim, is the book of Job. They believe it was uh, compiled or revised by Moses. Now, Job probably lived a little bit before Abraham. The book of Job references the old ways before the flood, but Job lived to be in about his 200s, which from other accounts is a normal lifespan for those uh, few generations after the flood. The last Old Testament book in our canon is Malachi, written about 400 B.C. After that, there was what was called the 400 years of silence, when men did not hear from God. Although during that time period, there was the the Maccabee revolt took place, and we have the book of Maccabees there, but we don't include that in our canon. And the last book in the New Testament was written in, uh, fittingly slow, was Revelations, and it was written in 90 A.D., So we have a span from 1500 B.C. to 90 A.D. So we have all these stories from creation, from uh, all the way down to us today that was preserved. And we still have copies of uh, this preservation from all all those uh, years ago. The immense work that men put into copying and preserving these different books that compile the Bible so that we can have them today is nothing short of miraculous. 
The preservation of the Bible throughout the ages is part of God's plan of preserving the Bible. The Bible says God's words shall not pass away, and one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. A tittle would be a very, a very small mark. It would be like the, the dot on a lowercase j. When the Bible was put together, it was not only put together for the sake of convenience, but it was to make a clear statement about the books that are accepted, that are in the canon. The canon means the, uh, the approved or confirmed books that make up the scriptures. During the early church period, many different books were written and debated as to whether or not they were inspired. Some of these books in the New Testament we use today had been at times rejected by churches and segments of Christianity for a period, particularly Revelations. There was a large, uh, large section of Christianity that just outright rejected Revelations for a period. So who decided to let uh, Revelations in and who decided to leave other books out? And why do some Bibles have extra books in them? As far as we know, what books are in, as far as we know, who decided what books were in and what books were out of the Bible, we don't really know. That's not really recorded anywhere. Now, folklore will say that Constantine had the canon settled at the Council of Nicaea in 328. But there is no records of that at all. Like they, they put out a statement after the council and said nothing about it. All of the bishops that attended said nothing about it in 328. But we do know that it got settled by 331 because we have our first uh, account of uh, Bibles. That's when the first known Bibles were made. The uh, Emperor Constantine ordered 50 copies of the complete scriptures. And then we have the records of the, the man who... Uh, compiled those books. We also have Origen, uh, an early church father, in the, the mid-2nd century, and he named 27 books to the New Testament. So that's our earliest record of somebody giving a list that we use today for the books in the Bible. And the canon of the Old Testament was decided before Christ was born. The Jews already had that closed. So how do you deal with the Apocrypha? Historically, the Apocrypha, or the extra-biblical books in question, traditionally, they have been dealt with by having the Old, book, the Old Testament books accepted for their historical value and the New Testament books outright rejected. The New Testament Apocrypha books were outright rejected by the early church almost right away. All you have to do is you have to read them, all you have to do is read them and you know that they're full of nonsense and fables. Um, I actually have some excerpts from a few of them here. There's a, a book of Thomas where Jesus gets bumped by a child, so Jesus strikes him dead. There's the Proto-Evangelium of James where Mary is raised in the temple and dedicated as a virgin from the age of three. There's the Acts of John where John goes to an inn, finds bedbugs in his bed and commands them to leave and then behave themselves. And there are the acts of Paul where Paul baptizes a lion and then he is thrown into the amphitheater at Ephesus and he is spared by said lion. And needless to say, there's, there's a lot of other doctrinal discrepancies and fanciful fables. 
So they were, they were pretty much rejected almost right out by the early church. So what about the Old Testament Apocrypha that, gets, that normally or historically has been accepted? It's even accepted by the, the Catholic Church today. And if, I, if I'm correct in this, the, um, the Amish have it in their Bibles because they, they use Luther's translation. So I believe they're in there. And even the KJV had it in until almost 200 years ago. So all Christianity had it included in their Bibles for almost 1,500 years. So why, why don't we use it today? To start off with, the Jews, even themselves, rejected the Old Testament Apocrypha books. The Old Testament canon was closed before Christ was ever born. The Old Testament Apocrypha books have always lived with a question mark over them. Even in the Catholic Church, they were viewed as part of the canon, but the bottom part. When Luther made his translation, he did not include them with the Old Testament. He put them in their own section. And it was the Puritans that really were the ones that made the big push to toss it. They believed in sola scriptura, or the Bible alone. And with that, anything other than the Bible gets tossed. So as I said here, the the Bible really only came into existence in the third century, as far as we know. And the Bible meaning all the books put together in one volume. Before then, uh, only some of the books would have been kept together, but most of them would have been on their own scroll or a short codex. A codex being a sort of early version of a Roman book. So each synagogue and church would have had various numbers of these scrolls, many times not having a complete set. The reason they they had them all apart and not together was for the sake of practicality. Uh, A scroll that had all the books together would have been too large to to handle. And our books today, we write on both sides of the page. With a scroll, you would write on one side. So they would have like double the amount of paper that, that we use today. And looking things up in a scroll is not like flipping through a book. You had, to, you had to roll through the entire scroll. You had to rotate both handles at the same time, going something like eight inches at a shot. And just to give us a bit of an idea, the, the book of Matthew on a scroll is about 32 feet long. So imagine like you're, you're at the beginning of the book and you want to look at a verse at the end, and you've got to rotate through the entire thing, all while making sure you don't damage this valuable and expensive scroll. They would not have had, uh, they wouldn't have had paper like we have today either. The options they had were papyrus, which was a type of plant smashed together and dried, or a thin animal skin. Now, Jewish tradition from the Talmud said that all the scriptures had to be written on animal skin. It's interesting to note, though, that Paul, when he wrote his letters, wrote them on papyrus, mostly because it was cheaper, or it's presumed because it was cheaper. Now, papyrus doesn't hold up as well as animal skins, especially when a letter is being read publicly over and over again and transported to the various churches. So that's one of the reasons why we don't have any of the original New Testament manuscripts or any of Paul's uh, original letters today. So these scrolls, which later turned into the codexes, which is a type of book, had to be handwritten to make copies. A complete copy of the Bible took years to copy from end to end. And even longer if you're adding all those personal touches and fancy letters and pictures that they they really got into in the Middle Ages. 
There's, uh, I looked it up. There's actually a world record for the fastest copy of the Bible ever made with just the basic text. There's a man in India who holds that record, and he copied the entire Bible in four months. It took him four months, and he was, he was trying to do it as fast as he could. Often copies were not made from a scribe sitting down and looking at the text and then going over and writing. You would have someone up front reading from the text, and there would be a group of scribes, so they would make multiple copies at once. So when we, when we think about things like that and uh, how rare Bibles used to be, in many ways we are spoiled today. Most of us have extra Bibles lying around the house. and um, Yeah, the early church wouldn't even, even uh, have imagined that the, the Word of God would have been this uh, freely accessible to us today. Throughout history, as scrolls and Bibles wore out, they were replaced with new copies. And then those copies were used to make more copies and so on and so on until your dozens if not hundreds of copies were removed from the original. Any of us that have used a copying machine knows that when you go and make a copy of a picture, the copy of the pictures never quite 100%. It's always just a little bit a uh, little bit off. Now imagine if you take that copy and make a copy of it and then a copy of that copy and you keep going until you get to your 100th one. The distinction between the two is going to be even greater because every time you do that there's just a little bit of data lost. So how do we know that the, the copies of the Bible we have today is 100% perfect, word for word, for what the, uh, the original authors wrote down? If one of those scribes made a mistake, it would be copied by all those who came after him, and the errors would keep mounting up. Or what if a scribe who was sitting there listening to someone read the Bible simply misheard him reading the text for him to write down? A lot of words in, uh, even a lot of words in English and other languages sound similar, like the word effect and effect be very easy to mishear and write down the wrong word. Or what if it wasn't an accident and the scribe added a verse to explain something? Or perhaps a verse from another gospel that they uh, thought was missing. There's uh, a number of verses that are claimed that that happened in the Bible. And I want to look at, a, look at one of them here today. I'm going to need somebody to read, uh, read a verse for me. Who has a KJV and is willing to read a verse? Ethan. Did you read Matthew 17.21 for us? Okay. Does uh, any of your brothers have an NIV along or an ESV? I was a little suspicious that somebody might not have one of those. So, Ethan, would you like an NIV or a uh, ESV? I'll let you pick. Could you read that same verse for us? It's not there. Oh, the same thing would happen if uh, I can take that back. 
Same thing would happen if I handed you an NIV. So there's translations today that literally they've dropped verses out of. So the KJV has verses that other translations today that are widely used don't use. Now, these translations dropped that out because it was believed that that verse was added in there from other manuscripts that the KJV was translated from. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about modern translations here in a minute. But there's something like 16 different places in the Bible that they've dropped verses from the, the KJV. And, you know, arguably some of those might, might have been the correct choice. So the fact is there's different Bibles and circulations in Christianity today. Now, some of those versions, I, I know the ESV, I know a few of us have actually used that. So there's different, slightly different copies of the Bible even amongst us. So how do we, how do we deal that? deal with that? To start with, we know that there's a question mark on those verses. A lot of modern translations that include those verses oftentimes put them in brackets and then have uh, further footnotes down at the bottom explaining what the, um, what the problem is. Now, we can know that, that uh, those verses are in question because we can look back at almost 2,000 years of manuscripts and Bible and compare them one to another. The other thing is we have several early manuscripts of various New Testament books. We also have a couple of third century complete Bibles. The oldest Bible in the world is the, uh, the Vatican Codex. It's named the Vatican Codex because it's kept in the Vatican. Now, it is claimed that uh, that Bible was one of the 50 that Constantine commissioned to have made. So it would have been, as far as we know, one of the original Bibles, meaning the, the compiled works. So it and lots of other early Bibles and manuscripts are always a reference point for translators. There's also this long process of lower and higher textual criticism that the text grows through and an endless debate over majority text or earliest text and which one gets preferred authority. So there, there is a scholarly system in place that sorts through and tries to bring us the most accurate rendering of the original text as possible. Even if it appears that man is or was in control of the Bible, it still comes down to trust in the fact that God preserves his word. But we need to make sure we understand and are wise when we pick a tra- the translation we use and understand why the translators translated the way they did. So let's talk about translations a little bit. The Bible, when it was written, was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. Now, languages change over time, so the Hebrew and Greek of the Bible is similar, but not the same as the Hebrew and Greek we have today. Languages change rather quickly, adopting slang and being influenced by other languages. Just for example, um, the, Jew- the Orthodox Jewish rabbi in Lancaster told me when he hears a Hasidic Jew speak in Hebrew, he can't understand them. So even in that that period of time whenever those groups diverged, the languages changed enough that they can't understand one another. Now, if I was to ask you here today, what uh, what language did Jesus speak? Does anybody want to... What, what would most people say? Does somebody shout it out? Hebrew. Okay. Yeah, that's what most people would say. He was, he was a Hebrew, so he spoke Hebrew. Well, a lot of the things he said was actually Aramaic. Like, 
the term Abba Father, that's Aramaic, that's not Hebrew. So, these are the original... So, the translators took the Bible from the original language and translated it uh, eventually into Latin. Now, I already mentioned here the, the Septuagint. There was sort of this uh, barrier here. The, the Septuagint was uh, an Old Testament in 2nd or 3rd century B.C. of the Old Testament. So they, they had the Greek there of the Old Testament before Christ. Um, the Aramaic got translated into Greek almost right away. So we have almost the, the entire Bible in Koine Greek. So when people want to figure out what, uh, what the Bible is really saying here or reference back to it, that's why everyone says, oh, like, uh, what, what does the Greek say? Because that's, as far as we are concerned, that is the original language that we have. When the, the Bible was first translated into uh, Latin, the first translation into Latin today, they, they called that the Old Latin. So the, the Bibles in the third century would have been called the Old Latin. The Old Latin was only in use for a few generations until it was revised due to errors and discrepancies. 382, uh, the early church father Jerome was commissioned by the Pope to revise the Gospels. But the early church father Jerome went ahead and did the whole Bible. Going back to the manuscripts he could get his hands on, he revised the Old Latin translation. And by the 6th century, his translation became the standard and the old Latin translation began to die out. His translation was later given the name Vulgate, which means common. And it became the standard Bible translation for almost a thousand years for all of Christianity. Now, the Catholic Church historically has been very dogmatic about the Latin Bible and Latin in general. It was used for so long and tied into so much tradition that translations into the common tongue, such as English or German or French, etc., was preached against by the Catholics and they defended the use of the Latin. This created problems because Latin, as a trade language, began to die out after the decline of the Roman Empire. It led to Latin only being known by educated people and the priesthood. It left the common people with a language barrier between them and the word of God, which gave the priesthood an unprecedented unprecedented amount of authority. It became the only way to go to God was no longer through Christ, but through the priest. The authority that the Catholic Church had over the people was taken away during the Reformation. Martin Luther often gets credited with starting the fire of of the Reformation, but it was common language translations and the printing press that threw gasoline onto that fire. No longer did people have to go through the priesthood to get to the word of God. They had it in their own hands and could read and interpret it themselves. In many ways, that was a good thing, but admittedly, it splintered the church. Modern denominationalism came out of the Reformation because you had everyone doing their own interpretations. And I think God says this or I think God says this. So now we can't have fellowship. Now. The two, uh, the two biggest Bible translations that came out of the Reformation period would have been Martin Luther's German translation and the KJV. Now, since we, we don't use German Bibles here today, I'm going to sort of skim over uh, Luther's translation and just focus on the KJV. Now, the King James Version is so named because it was commissioned by King James of England. 
England had broken with the Catholic Church a couple of generations before, having that break contested repeatedly. James saw that the Church of England needed a reliable and standard English Bible. Although not the first English translation of the Bible, the KJV became the standard not only for the Church of England, but all English-speaking people. It is debated how good of a translation the KJV was. Some people calling the translation process, they put it through the most rigorous and thorough criticism there had ever been for a translation. Strong supporters of the KJV claim it is the only translation that can be used and that somehow this particular translation was even inspired. I've heard it called the authorized version before. While critics claim the translators of the KJV used insufficient and later texts, which, looking at the historical evidence, admittedly they did because the Catholics had all the the good old texts and they, they certainly weren't about to share. And you also have today... Critics of the KJV today always make reference to the, the archaic language used in the KJV, that it's hard to understand. One thing I can almost guarantee, none of the KJV-only people are using a real King James Bible. For starters, the King James Version had the Apocrypha books in it, the Old Testament Apocrypha books. And King James even had laws in place preventing it from being removed. Secondly, in 1769, a book printing company hired a man named Benjamin Blaney to revise the KJV. That revision dropped out the Apocrypha. He did so because it would make the production of Bibles faster and it would make them cheaper. And the Puritans, who in this time period rejected the Apocrypha, uh, would buy them. So it was a marketing, marketing gimmick almost. The revision he came up with is called the Oxford Text. And all the KJVs we use today are based on that from 1796. Sorry, 1769. So while we're talking about Bibles here today, I, I imagine most of us have, uh, have King James Bibles, but I'm just kind of curious just to get a feel for what, uh, what other sort of Bibles we have here. Um, I already asked about the ESV. Does anybody have use for their Bibles, like the New American Standard Bible, or an NIV, we got Ethan, uses the New American Standard. Uh, does anybody here use a paraphrase for their Bible? I'm hoping no one hands come, go up. Okay, does anybody have anything different? Just raise your hand if you have something different. Okay. Yeah, the KGB is pretty standard amongst our churches. I also wanted to ask, did anybody not bring a Bible today? I'm sure somebody didn't bring a Bible today. But I would encourage all of you the, that we need to bring our Bibles. It's very important that we have the Word of God in front of us, that we're able to look at it, um, follow along, and at times when our minds are led to other verses, be able to look those up. And also for all of us parents, I would encourage us for our older children... It's, it's good if we have older children start getting them into the habit of bringing a Bible. It's our responsibility to make sure they understand how important that book is. All right, so let's start uh, 
working through the, the murky waters of other modern translations. There's an estimated 450 modern translations of the English Bible that are in print today. Some of them are solid, literal translations, all the way to those actually having evil biases. There's a, there was a woman's Bible, which was a feminist Bible translation in 1895, which is still in print today. That was right around the time uh, people were campaigning for women to vote. They appointed a revisionist committee that basically just took the English translation and changed it all according to their bias, making God a mother and eliminating all references to women being in subjection. There's the Street Bible, a translation of inner city black slang that, from my understanding, actually has some uh, profanity in it. Or there's the Queen James Bible, which their actual stated goal was literally edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation of God's word. And I could go on. There's surfer Bibles, comic book Bibles, and hippie Bibles. With these extreme copies, any sensible person can look at them and know that there's something wrong right away. But when we talk about translations, one of the big issues that arise is whether a Bible translation is literal or a paraphrase. And um, let me just be clear where I stand on this issue. I know I already asked if anybody had a paraphrase here, and I'm glad that no one did or no one admitted they did, but paraphrases are garbage. They really are. And if anybody had one here today, I would tell you to, that there's a trash can in the back of the auditorium here, and you can throw it in there on your way out. Because paraphrases are not Bibles. Okay, Paraphrases are someone's interpretation of the Bible, but it's being presented to you as though it is the Word of God. Just imagine for a moment that you let someone have influence over your life who didn't believe uh, what the Bible teaches about uh, the two kingdom principles, about separation from the world, about non-resistance, about uh, the practical Christian life, and that their influence had the same level of authority as the word of God. That's what you're doing when you use a paraphrase. That's why you can't use a paraphrase as your Bible. So then what? If you just use a literal translation, are you safe? Would it make some of you uneasy if I said no? All translations need some form of adjusting in order to make them grammatically make sense and follow the line of thought that was presented by the original author. No translation is 100% accurate. Very rarely do words mean the exact same thing going from one language to another. Now, a literal translation, when they translate the Bible, they're making an earnest attempt to give you what the original authors wrote down with as little adjusting as they possibly can. That being said, there is still a few biases that slip through here. So let's look at one here. I'm going to uh, to read here 1 Peter 3.3 out of the KJV. And this is talking about women, women, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating of hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on apparel. Now, Ethan, you said you have a New American Standard? Not with you. Not with you. Okay. Well, the New American Standard says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. What those literal translations did was they added the word merely. And that's... Uh, and the New King James Version translated with that word merely as well. And that changes the entire meaning of the passage. 
It makes it now say that women can wear gold and fancy clothes as long as they also spiritually adorn themselves. But because it is a literal translation, they have to call that out. They know they added that word and they know they have to call it out. In the Bible, when you see a word that is italicized, that means that the translators added that word because they thought that's what was necessary to make it, make it, uh, make it mean what the, the author originally meant. Oftentimes, when they do that, when they add words, it's words like and, the, or to, words that really are just for the, the flow in English. But whenever a word has, is italicized, you need to go back and double-check, especially if it changes the meaning of the passage. Another thing to watch out for in your Bibles is uh, when verses are in brackets or words are in brackets, like earlier, like uh, Matthew 17:21 that we talked about, the New American Standard includes that in the translation, but they put it in brackets because it's in question, because some other translators have taken that out. It's in the KJV without brackets, though. Now, they claim, that particular verse, they claim that they, uh, they, t- they took it out because there is no record of that verse being there before, like, the 12th century or something like that. So it appears that it was added in by a translator trying to make a note. Now, the KJV is still one, and if not, the best choice for a Bible. As long as you can deal with the archaic language. That's something that people have to get used to. Now, admittedly, there are some, some solid literary translations. Again, you just need to make sure that if a word's italicized and it changes the meaning that you validate it before you believe it. I'm going to try to wrap this up. I want us to briefly consider some apologetics of the Bible. Now, apologetics means the defense of. How can we prove that the Bible is God's revelation and the Koran or some other book isn't God's revelation to man? Now, the short answer to that is you can't. You can't prove it. If you could objectively prove the validity of the Bible... It would, not, it would have been done a long time ago, and the religious jumble we have today in the world wouldn't exist. All of us here believe the Bible is God's revelation. But does our subjective belief validate the Bible in some way that a Muslim's belief in the Koran doesn't? Subjective belief and experience, although may be true, can't be used as proofs. Objective evidence is what people look for when trying to prove something. Maybe we could say there's miracles in the Bible. There's stories of miracles in all religions. Maybe we could point to the fact that Christians were willing to die for the faith. Again, there's martyrs in all religions. Now, I would encourage us and hope that we don't fall into the, the trap of uh, saying something along the lines. I, I actually heard, uh, I had a college professor, a uh, first-year college professor, say this to me one time. Uh, and I've heard other people say, he said, the Bible says God cannot lie, and the Bible is God's word, therefore it is true. Even outside the absurdity of having the Bible self-validate itself, I mean, which any book can, I mean, I could write on a piece of paper saying, uh, I am always true, therefore this statement is true. I mean, you can't self-validate. You also have to have, you also can't make an argument out of authority like that. 
If you make an argument out of authority, both parties have to have the same authority. They both have to view the Bible as being authoritative. If you go and talk to, or I'll, I'll just flip this around. If a Muslim walked in here and told us that we need to pray five times a day facing Mecca because the Quran says so, we would think, hey, what do we care? We don't, we don't believe what the Quran says. That's the exact same way if we go up to a Muslim and say, the Bible says you should do this. They'll, they'll just totally disregard what you're saying. Because they don't respect that same authority that we're arguing out of. So what about uh, maybe logical or philosophical reasoning? Many people have tried throughout the centuries to come up with bulletproof arguments defending the faith. And you know you could have a whole message just on them. Many of them are convincing and have turned people to the Lord. Honest reason will always yield to truth. But the deceptions of this world seek to keep men blind. What about archaeological discoveries? There's a growing popularity with Christians who seem to find validation for their faith with every archaeological discovery that correlates with something in the Bible. Of course, archaeological finds will correlate with the Bible. But we believe the Bible in spite of any evidence. Our faith is not based on objective proof. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. For someone to come and believe that the Bible is true is an act of faith. and can only be achieved through the working of God in a man's heart. Clear arguments persuasion can help a non-believer. But again, it is only God that changes a man's heart. And it is only the Bible that can lead him on. Okay, I feel I hit enough of topics today. Um, again, all the, the topics I talked about here, I talked about, I'm, I just did a survey. It was very shallow. Um, I probably raised more questions than I answered. And, you know, if I did, then, then good. I'm glad. You know, I hope and encourage you that you can go and do your own research and deepen your knowledge of God's revelation in the written word. God bless you.